We're going to take a break from our study in Isaiah until I get back from Bulgaria. There's just several things that the last several weeks have been on my heart, and I just kind of want to share them before I go uh, on Wednesday nights. Tonight I want us to talk about the idea of hope. Now, I've mentioned before that I want to be a man of hope. I want hope to be one of the defining characteristics of my life. I want to exude such hope cynical people think I'm foolish and naive. I want hope to influence and guide everything I do. I mean, I want to, to pray in hope. I think of Psalm 5, 3, where the psalmist says that in the morning the Lord would hear his prayers and then he would look up. And it means just he would spend his morning crying out to God. And then the rest of the day he would be on the watch looking for God to, to answer his prayer. And that's how I want to pray. I want to preach in hope. Every time I stand to declare God's word, I want to have a sense that God is going to work through the preaching to to do something in the midst of those who gather, that he will save the lost, he'll restore the prodigal, he'll heal broken hearts, set captives free, free, uh, open spiritually blind eyes, sanctify saints, and raise the spiritually dead to new life in Christ. I want to live in hope. I want to have such an expectation of God working in me and through me and for me, uh, and to keep his word to accomplish his will in my life, that no matter where I go or what I'm doing, I anticipate an opportunity to encounter someone that gives me the opportunity to minister to them in the name of Jesus, the power of the Spirit, for the glory of God. I, I want to, to give hope to other people. In an overly general sense, there are two kinds of people in the world. Those who drain you and those who refresh you. Those who discourage you and those who encourage you. Those who cause despair and those who inspire hope. I want to be the kind of person who refreshes, encourages, and inspires others. My desire to be a person of hope motivates me to pray our church would be a beacon of hope. Every day, I pray God would make us a beacon of hope here at our church, like it says on our sign. And what I mean by beacon of hope is twofold. First, that there would be a culture of hope within our church. A culture of hope is when each one of us who calls this their church home would come with a sense of anticipation and expectation and hope of what God is going to do in us, through us and for us every single time we gather together. And second, to have to be a beacon of hope is for the people in our community to know that this is a place where they can come and they can find the hope, help and healing that only come through Jesus Christ. Now, when I say hope, I'm not talking about a far-fetched dream we wish would come true. I wish a cold front would come through and bring five inches of rain, right? Not, that's not what I'm talking about with hope. The difference between hope, like what I'm talking about, and a far-fetched dream we wish would come true is what it is anchored in. A far-fetched dream is anchored in our desires, our wishes, our dreams, what we want to happen. Hope is anchored in something solid and something real. Hope is a well-grounded, well-founded expectation God will do what He has said He will do. Now, expectation is a key aspect of understanding hope. When we have hope in God, we expect God to do something. Now, already, for many of us, the idea of saying we expect God to do something can sound presumptuous. And in fact, it can be if our expectation is anchored in our wishes, our dreams, or our desires. But if this expectation is anchored in something solid and real, it's not only not presumptuous, but it is an act of humility. Right? It is not only not presumptuous, but it is an act of humility to expect God to do these sorts of things. So what must our hope be anchored in 
So our expectation is humility and not presumption. Open your Bible to Hebrews 6. Uh, We're going to start in verse 13 and we'll read through to verse 20. should be on page 923 in the Pew Bible. When you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear an oath by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Indeed, I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply you. And so... Having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. For people swear an oath by one that is greater than themselves. And with them, an oath serving as a confirmation is the end of every dispute. In the same way, God desiring to more, God desiring even more to demonstrate to the heirs of the promise the fact that his purpose is unchangeable, confirmed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to hold firmly to the hope set before us. This hope we have is an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and reliable and one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The title of the message tonight is The Anchor of Hope. Let's pray. Our Father, we love you today. You are great and glorious. You are wonderful and worthy. And we want, Lord, to know you better. We want to love you more. We want our lives to be reflective of who you are and what you're like. Father, your word has given us many great and precious promises. And we want to take those at face value and live in light of them. We want to be a people of hope. We want our church to be a beacon of hope. Begin tonight to do this within us. Father, we need you to do this. This is not something we can do. We cannot make ourselves people of hope. We cannot just choose that we are going to to have hope. It really, in many ways, something you have to do. You are the God of hope who fills us, your word says, with all joy and peace and believing so we can abound in hope with the power of your Holy Spirit. So do that within each and every one of us. Do that with everyone who calls this church their home. And let this be a beacon of hope. Father, let the light of hope and the light of Christ shine out from this place and the many Many people in our community who are despairing, the many, many people in our community who are trapped in darkness would see that light and they would be drawn to it and they would come to know Christ as their Savior. Fill me tonight with your Holy Spirit. Give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. I would speak your words and your ways for your glory. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. Now, most know the original recipients of this letter were suffering because of their faith in Jesus. The suffering was hard. It was continuous. And they were... then it showed no sign of letting up. And because of this, they were considering giving up and going back to Jesus. Or going back on Jesus. Going back to Judaism. Right? They were spiritually discouraged. They were rapidly losing hope. And they were on the verge of just completely giving up. The author seeks to, he writes to them in an effort to encourage them to persevere in hope. But as we look at this passage, which talks about hope and the hope being in the anchor for their souls... He doesn't anchor the hope in their wishes or their dreams or their desires. Rather, he anchors this hope in what God had said. So all throughout this passage, what God had said is the key to hope. God made promises to Abraham in verses 13 and 14. God gave an unchanging oath in verses 16 and 17. God, uh, The oath is unchanging because God cannot lie according to verse 18, and all God says becomes the hope we flee to for refuge also in verse 18. And then this hope becomes the anchor of our soul in verse 19. Hope 
is indeed the anchor of our souls that keeps us from drifting away from Jesus. But the word of God is the anchor for our hope in God. Hope is indeed the anchor for our souls that keeps us tethered to Christ, keeps us from falling away when times are hard. But it is the word of God that is the anchor for our hope in God. We are told to to flee to refuge to this hope and lay hold of it. This passage gives us three ways to do this. First, we must believe the promises of God. Now, when biblical authors wanted to point to someone who believed the promises of God, they would usually point to Abraham, who was called the father of faith. Now, while God made a lot of specific promises to Abraham, two are given in this passage. God swore by himself, saying, one, indeed, I will greatly bless you. God promised to bless Abraham throughout his life. The question we would ask is, were these physical blessings or were they spiritual blessings? And the answer is, of course, yes. The, answer, the, the blessings God gave to Abraham were both physical and spiritual. Uh, they would include God's presence, they would include God's protection, and they would include God's physical provision. God also promised, I will greatly multiply you. The promise of multiplying Abraham was significant for two reasons. First, this was more than the promise of a single child. God promised Abraham he would be the father of many nations and have so many descendants. They would be like sands on the seashore or stars in the sky. Second, Abraham was 75 years old. Sarah was around 65 years old. And up to this point, Sarah had been barren. To say they were past the childbearing years would be an understatement. Abraham and Sarah had likely given up on the possibility of ever having kids. Much less, and they probably given up on having a kid, much less on having so many descendants that they would be the parents of many nations. But notice what we're told in verse 15. And so, having patiently waited. So God gave these promises to Abraham, and then Abraham had to patiently wait to receive the promises. Abraham had to wait On God, for God to fulfill the promises in His time. Now, if you're familiar with the story of Abraham, you know that Abraham initially had to wait 25 years before the first one of these promises was fulfilled. Can you imagine having to wait 25 years for something the God of heaven told you would happen to happen? Can you imagine that maybe we might get discouraged? Can you imagine that maybe our hope would waver? I can imagine that mine would. But one of the great things about Abraham is we're told in Romans 4, 19 and 20, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in his faith, giving glory to God as he waited for God to fulfill his promise. Abraham lived his life believing the promises of God. Abraham believed God's promises were as true 24 years into waiting as they were 24 weeks into waiting. Abraham was absolutely convinced God would do whatever he had said he would do. Now, like Abraham, God has given us incredible promises. We don't have time to get into, as Peter calls them, the great and precious promises of God. But I just want to look at three tonight that that God has given us that are amazing. And we we must just believe right. We have been changed by Jesus. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the person is a new creation. The old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now, there are several ways this is important for us to believe. I think on the one hand, if you have 
in your past, things that you deeply regret, mistakes that you have made, sins you have committed, and you often mourn the things that you have done in your past, it's good to know you're not that same person anymore. It's good to remind yourself, yes, I did those things and I can't undo those things, but I'm not that person any longer. That is something to help us when our past tends to overwhelm us. I think at the same time, for many of us, maybe we know someone who knew us in the old way and they try to bring it up. And they try to, to press in on what we used to be like. And how can you claim to be living for Jesus when you were once like this? And in that we can, it can take root in our hearts. And what we have to say to them and again to ourselves is, that's true. I was all of those things you said and more. Things you don't even know about. But I'm not that person anymore. Now here's the reality. For most of us, we all knew that pro- that passage. We, we knew that promise. And there are legitimately days where we feel, yes, I am a new creation. That is who I am. I am not who I once was. Then there's also probably days where we wonder, am I saved? Have I really been born again? Am I really anything different? We can't go off our feelings. We go off the promises of God. We, we trust That what God has said He will do. And God has said that when we are in Christ, we will be made into a new creation and the old things are passed away. And we can say, I I don't feel like a new creation. But because God is faithful, I am a new creation. This is something we must know and and a promise of God we must believe. We must also believe we have an advocate in Jesus. The Apostle John I love this passage and I don't have time to get into it as much as I want tonight, but just look at the wording. It is beautiful, precious passage. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Now, I just want to stop there. There's the standard. There's the standard for all of our lives. You are a disciple of Jesus. What's the standard? That you do not sin. That's what God wants from us. He wants us to be holy after we've been born again. But... But what if we do sin? What if we do fail? Does God turn against us at that point? Does God go from being for us to against us? Is He suddenly angry with us and going to smite us? What does Jesus feel about us in that moment when we do sin? And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. So think about that. Jesus as our advocate. That basically means our defense lawyer. It's essentially what that means. So, God's standard for you and I, we do not sin. But if we do, Jesus in that moment stands as our defending attorney. He stands and speaks in favor of us in the courts of heaven. That when the accuser brings the accusations against us, our advocate stands and he defends us. In that moment. And it's even better because when he defends us, he doesn't plead that we're not guilty. He he doesn't come up and say, well, what they did wasn't that bad. He doesn't come up and say, well, 99% of the time they're wonderful. But this one thing, surely it's not that big of a deal. What does our advocate plead? Himself. He pleads himself as our propitiation, as the one who has paid the penalty for our sins. He pleads his own blood on the cross in our place. 
And so when we sin and the enemy brings the accusation, our Savior stands and says, yes, they absolutely did it. But my blood and my death cover this sin as well. Again, I think you can all see where this is an important verse to know. If you're a child of God and you're a disciple of Jesus, you long to be holy as your father is holy. You long to be as holy as a saved sinner can. But the reality is you're not. You're tempted and you sin in any number of ways we do. And if we're not careful, we can let our sin overwhelm us. We can let our sin discourage us to the point of giving up on even trying. Meanwhile, Jesus is our advocate in that moment, defending us, pleading his blood on our behalf. And if we can say, you know what, that's a true thing. I did sin. It's a legitimate problem. But Jesus died for me. My sins are still forgiven. That keeps the enemy from getting a a leg up on us. That keeps him from being able to use his schemes and his mind games to deceive and destroy us. We have an advocate in Jesus. And then lastly, we are supernaturally empowered to serve Jesus. But to each one is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And I always want to make sure we all know that when we are saved, the Holy Spirit comes to live within us. And he equips us to do something for the advancement of the gospel, for the glory of Christ. There are no disciples of Jesus, no born again disciples of Jesus who are not in some way supernaturally empowered to serve Jesus. Again, that is a wonderful truth. And our gifts, whatever they may be, they are significant, they are needed, and they are important. So we can say, I am gifted. I am able to serve Jesus in one way or another. Now, these are just a taste of the many great and precious promises God has given us through Jesus. But if we are to be a people of hope, we must believe God's promises. We must be convinced they are true. We must be convinced they are unchanging. And we must be convinced they are unfailing. But to know these promises... To know what they are, we must make a choice to study God's Word. Because the promises are given to us in God's Word. Romans 15 and 4 says God's Word is given for our instruction. So we, through perseverance and the encouragement of Scripture, would have hope. We must know what God's Word has said. Or what God has said before His Word will be an anchor Of our hope. So we have to choose to study, to be in the Word, but then we also have to choose to believe what we read. Believe God's Word. God's Word cannot give comfort and hope unless we believe it. Right? And there are two, two ways we must believe God's Word. We must believe God's Word is right. It is right on anything it says. Now to say, I believe God's Word is right. To say we believe God's word is right. It means we believe God's word is right even if we don't like it. It means we believe God's word is right even if it goes against our natural inclinations. It means we believe God's word is right even if it goes against what we've always been taught. 
It means we believe God's word is right, even if it's contrary to everything everyone in culture says. It means we believe God's word is right, regardless of what issue God's word is talking about. God's word is right. The end. This is what we have to do. We must believe God's word is right, but we must also believe God's word is real. Not only must we believe God's word is right, but we must also believe God's word is real. I've said Many times before, I fear that for many people who are disciples of Jesus, they see God's word as a pie in the sky ideal of how things maybe they should be, but not the reality of how they can be. Right? That yes, yes, in a practical, in a perfect world, I would be a new creation. But in practice... I just don't think that's the case. Yes, I can see in a perfect situation, Jesus would be my advocate. But in a practical way, I just don't think that's true. Yes, I can see in an ideal sense where we're gifted by the Spirit to serve Jesus. But in a practical way, I just don't think I am. And you take that and you can apply it to over and over and over again to many other things in God's Word. But what if? What if God's Word is not... The pie in the sky ideal. But what if it is the reality of how things can be and how things should be? Wouldn't that change so much about how we take it and how we live it and how we respond to the things that we go through in our lives? Listen, nowhere in God's word is it ever presented as the pie in the sky ideal. It is always presented as this is how you can live. This is how you should live. This is what's genuinely, legitimately available to you through faith in Jesus Christ. We must believe God's word is real. So do we believe God's word is right and real? Because these are truly profound questions. And our answers, our real answers, will determine our ability to be a people of hope. God's word cannot be our anchor of hope if we do not believe it's right in what it says. God's word cannot be the anchor of our hope if we do not believe it shows us the reality of how things can be and how things should be. The word of God is the anchor for our hope in God. And so we must believe the promises of God. Second, trust the character of God. If you like me, you know people who give their word and they make great promises and they talk a good game. But when it gets right down to it, their promises don't mean much. They know how to say the right things at the right times to make you think they're going to do it this time. But again, when push comes to shove, the rubber meets the road. They fall through. They don't keep their word. And if you know many people like that, and if you've been let down by many people like that, We can wonder, is it safe to even trust God? Everybody else has let us down. Everybody else has backs away from their word. How can we be sure it is safe to believe God's promises? How can we be sure God will do the things he has said he will do? We're given the answer in verses 16 through 18. There are good reasons we can trust the promises God has given us. First is God doesn't change. Look at verse 17. In the same way, God desiring, or I'm sorry, I'll read verse 16 and 17. For people swear an oath by one greater than themselves, uh, 
and with them an oath serving as a confirmation as the end of every dispute. So people give promises and say, I swear by this, and that's the end. They're going to do it. So in the same way, God, desiring even more to demonstrate to the heirs of promise the fact that his purpose is unchangeable, confirmed it with an oath. So God gives a promise, and he wants to be sure that we understand, those who have received it, they understand that his purpose in giving those promises is unchangeable. That's the point. His purpose in giving all of his promise are unchangeable. And what this means is this is a part of the idea that God does not change. Since God does not change, he won't break his word. If he has said he will do it, he will do it, and we can be sure he will. Also, since God doesn't change, his power doesn't change. This means if he was able to do it in Abraham's day, he's able to do it in our day. God is able. The immutability, the unchanging nature of God gives us confidence to trust the character of God. Right? God does not waver. He does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Not only does God not change, but God cannot lie. Verse 18, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. Right? For God to say he would do it and then not do it would make him a liar. But God isn't a liar. In fact, it says in verse 18, it is impossible for God to lie. God's character is so perfect, it is not possible for God to lie. So it's not merely that God chooses not to lie and so is honest and trustworthy. No, that's not the point. The point is God is holy and God is pure and God is perfect. In fact, he is so holy, so pure and so perfect, it is legitimately impossible for God to lie. Now, this may seem to be a a distinction that's not that big of a deal, but it is. And here's why. Honest and trustworthy people choose not to lie. And honest and trustworthy people may rarely lie. But honest and trustworthy people can lie. And even the most honest and trustworthy people we know have lied and do lie. So God, on the other hand, is not an honest and trustworthy being who chooses not to lie. God is a being of absolute perfection and absolute holiness who cannot lie. This makes God the only being worthy of unconditional and absolute trust. And since God is worthy of our unconditional and absolute trust, we have a strong encouragement, it says in verse 18, to hold firmly to the hope set before us. And the hope set before us is the hope of God doing what He said He would do. The character of God is such He always does exactly what He said He will do. This truth is the foundation of every promise God has ever given. Now, time would not permit us to study the great depth of what this would mean about the character of God and trusting the promises of God. But there is one example that I find so powerful that I want us to explore and understand. So turn, hold your finger here, we are coming back. But turn to Deuteronomy 4 and verse 29. Should be on page 143 in your pew Bible. Deuteronomy 4 and 29 says, But from there you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find Him if you search for Him 
with all your heart and soul. So we're told in this one verse, if we seek the Lord, genuinely seek Him with all our heart and soul, we will always find the Lord. Now that, on its own, is a great promise. But it is better than we initially realize. Because notice, in verse 29, it says, but from there. Well, what does from there refer to? Well, let's read the context, which starts in verse 25. When you father children and have grandchildren, and you grow old in the land, and you act corruptly, and you make an idol in the form of anything, and do what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God to provoke Him to anger, I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you today that you will certainly perish quickly from the land from where you are going over Jordan to possess, to take possession of it. You will not live long in it, but you will be utterly destroyed. The Lord will scatter you among the peoples and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord drives you. There you will serve God, the work of human hands, wood and stone, which neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell anything. But from there you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him if you search for him with all your heart and all your soul. When you're in distress and all these things happen to you in the latter days, you'll return to the Lord your God and listen to his voice. For the Lord your God is a compassionate God. And he will not abandon you nor destroy you nor forget the covenant with your fathers which he swore to them. So the context is they're on the verge of going into the promised land and when they go in, they're going to say, God is great, God is wonderful and they're going to live for him. But over time, they're going to drift and they're going to drift away from everything God had told them to do. And they're going to be chased after foreign idols and they're going to be doing all of these other things. And so they're going to bring upon themselves all of the curses God had promised would come to pass. And as a part of that, there would be all manner of judgment and there would be all manner of punishment. And then they would be scattered and they would be driven among the lands of the earth, not their own. And there they would serve God's the work of human hands, wood and stone, which neither see nor hear nor smell. So they're left in a very bad way. And this isn't a tragedy. This isn't a picture of they're in this place. It's a tragedy. This is, it's their fault. They have brought these consequences upon themselves. They are reaping what they themselves have sown. And the promise is from there. From the place where they are scattered. From the place where they have been driven. From the place where they're being made to serve foreign gods. From there, if they seek the Lord, they will find Him. If they search for Him with all their heart and all their soul. They had abandoned God. And so He had allowed them to be taken captive. But despite their sin and rebellion, God would still be found by them if they called upon Him. So why would God do this? Why would God not just abandon them? Because... As it says in verse 30 and 31, the Lord God is compassionate. He does not abandon his people nor forget the promises. That's what a covenant means. The compass, the covenant, the promises which he had swore to them. God is compassionate even to his rebellious children. God is faithful to keep his promises even to his rebellious children. This is who God is. This is God's character. This is God's nature. This is what we have to trust to be a people of hope. Now, this truth here, the idea of God's character specifically to this, is powerful for two reasons. One, there may well be a time in our lives which we think now that would never happen. There may be a time in our lives where we drift far from God. 
And where we blow up our lives in spectacular ways. And as we sit in distress over the mistakes we've made and the mess we've made of our lives, we may begin to believe we are too far gone for God to take us back. Not so. We are always invited to go to God, confess our sins, and seek His forgiveness. And not only can we go to God from there, but we can expect, humbly expect, Him to be faithful to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we can expect this because this is what God said He would do in 1 John 1, 9. He said if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. God's character ensures He will always do the things He has said He would do. Second way this is really powerful and encouraging is we all have people in our lives we care about. And they are far from God. Now some profess faith in Jesus, but they live like they do not know Him. Some have professed faith in Jesus in the past, but now are openly prodigals. Some have never shown any sort of faith in Jesus at all. And we can begin to believe they are too far gone because of the hardness of their hearts, the spiritual blindness of their eyes, and the darkness, the spiritual darkness they've given themselves over to. Not so. They're always invited to go to Him, confess their sin, and seek His forgiveness. Not only... Can they go to God from there? But they and we, as those who love them and who intercede for them, can expect God will forgive their sins, give them new hearts and a new spirit, and make them new creations. They and we can expect this because this is what God said He would do in Romans 10 and 13. That all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. This is what God said He would do in Ezekiel 36, 26, where He said He would take out the heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh, and He would give a new spirit along with it. And it's what God said He would do in 2 Corinthians 5 and 17, where it says He would be made into new creations. God's character ensures He will always do the things He has said He would do. Go ahead and turn back to Hebrews 6. We can believe every promise of God because we trust the character of God. But again, this goes back to God's word. How do we know what God is like? It's revealed to us in his word. We don't have to guess about what God is like. We don't have to guess about whether God is good or merciful or compassionate or forgiving or loving. We don't have to guess at whether or not God does have wrath and judgment for those who persist in rebellion. All of the things about God we need to know has been revealed to us in God's word. Our job is not to figure out God. Our our job is not to, to try to decide and determine what God is like. God has told us what He is like. And our job is simply to receive His revelation of Himself and say, this is real and this is right. And this is what God is like. God has perfectly revealed Himself to us in His Word. The Word of God is the anchor for our hope in God because it reveals to us the character of God. And then finally, rest in the Son of God. We're told in verse 19, the hope we have is an anchor of the soul. This hope is both sure and reliable and it enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner 
for us. Now the idea of the anchor being sure and reliable is it is unbending, it is unwavering, and it cannot be dislodged. Therefore, no matter what storms come into our lives, the anchor will hold. For the anchor to give this kind of security, it must, or this kind of security and confidence to a ship, it must be hooked into something stronger than the ship. It must be hooked into something stronger than the winds and the waves that beat against the ship. As disciples of Jesus, our anchor is hooked to someone of immeasurable strength. It is hooked to Jesus Christ himself. That's the point. The hope as an anchor, it is sure and reliable. It enters in the veil where Jesus is. Now, for the Jews of this day, the idea of going within the veil, it pictures conjures up pictures of the temple, with the outer court, the holy place, and the most holy place, or the holy of holies, within the veil. This is where the very presence of God dwelt. The writer tells us, the hope we have is an anchor for our souls. And it is secured in the presence of God because Jesus has already gone in there. And Jesus has sat down at the right hand of God. And Jesus secures our hope, ensuring that it will sustain us through whatever comes into our lives. It will sustain us through any, anything that happens. How does Jesus secure our hope? Well, he has secured it through the cross. For the Son of God, Christ Jesus, was preached among you by us, by me and Silvanus and Timothy, was not yes and no, but has been yes in him. And as far as many as the promises of God are in him, they are yes. And therefore, through him also is our amen to the glory of God through us. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? From the moment Adam and Eve fell into sin, God promised the day would come when someone would crush the serpent's head and destroy his hold over humanity. Jesus fulfilled this promise on the cross. The point of these two verses, in many ways, is this. This was the very first promise God gave to humans. And if God kept that promise, even though it meant the awful death of his son on the cross in our place, won't he keep all the others? As disciples of Jesus, we believe we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We know that the cross is the place where our salvation was won. And so if we can look at the cross and see in the cross the penalty for our sins has been paid. And because of what took place there, our sins have been forgiven. And we now have a relationship with God and heaven will be our home. Then we look at then we can look at the same cross and know God will fulfill every other promise he has given us. Right? This is part of the point of the cross. It reminds us God keeps his word and we look and say God kept that enormous promise. And now God will keep these lesser promises. There is no hope apart from Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. At the same time, all hope. Is found in Jesus Christ. Our hopeful expectation of God keeping his promises. Isn't based upon the fact we are good. We have been good. Or one day we will be good. Our hopeful expectation rests entirely on Jesus. And what he has done for us on the cross. Every single promise of God. Is yes and amen to us because of Jesus. Now again. To me, this is a, a huge, important thing for us to get. 
These promises are yes and amen because of Jesus. Not because of anything we have ever done or anything we ever will do. They are yes and amen because of Jesus and only because of Jesus. So on the one hand, we have to stop limiting God because of our shortcomings and live in hopeful expectation because we are just resting that Jesus has secured the yes and the amen to all of this. But at the same time, if we have to wait patiently as Moses did, Moses did, as Abraham did. We can't go to God and say, but God, I've been good. God, I, I deserve this. Because at no point do we ever deserve God to keep any of his promises to us. It is always in Jesus and only in Jesus. And so we must, on the one hand, not limit God because we don't measure up. And rest in Jesus. And we must also, on the other hand, not expect that God owes us because of how good we've been. And stop doing that and just rest in Jesus. The word of God will always lead us to the son of God. Jesus said the word testifies of him. Paul said the word makes us wise unto salvation through faith in Jesus. The word of God will always lead us. To rest in the Son of God. The Son of God reveals the character of God. The Son of God secures and guarantees the promises of God. The Word of God is the anchor for our hope in God. And it will always lead us to rest in the Son of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you tonight. You are great and awesome. You are worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. Help us, O Lord, to rest in Jesus. Father, if we can believe what he has done, then everything else, it's ours. Make us to be a people who hope in that. Make us to be a people who expect in that. Deliver us from any sort of sense of entitlement that you owe us because of how good we've been. Deliver us also from any sense of inferiority because we don't measure up. In Christ, we are sufficient. And Christ is our only sufficiency. Guide us to take your word, to study it, to believe it, to believe it's right, to believe it's real. Just trust your character. You are who you say you are. You will do what you say you will do. Do be to us the God of hope who fills us with all joy and peace and believing. So we abound in hope through your Holy Spirit. We ask in Jesus name. Amen.